Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Brashid podcast. Today we have a, have with us a very special guest, His Grace Marlach Miyukhanis, the Bishop of the Diocese of Western Europe. Thank you for coming on the program, Mark, tonight. Um, it's a pleasure to have you on. Thank you, Aziza. Firstly, I'd like to uh, say thank you for inviting me to be with you. Um Andrew, of course, how to Masime and Subdeacon Ishu and like the um, Shahin, it's great to be with you all. God bless you. Thank you, Mar. It's a pleasure for us. So today's episode will be on the architecture of the church and how it ties in with the liturgy of the Holy Mass and other liturgies within the church. Um, so, Mar, our first question for you is: Can you tell us about your research in this area, in the area of architecture and the liturgy in the early East Syriac tradition? Right, of course. Um, many, many years ago, actually, uh, I started my doctoral thesis at Macquarie University. And when I did start, uh, my first subject was on the architecture and uh, the liturgy and how they connect together. Uh, when I first started, of course, um, I had, I still do, of course, a great love for architecture because I did my um, bachelor's in architecture at UNSW in Sydney and Kensington. And, um, and I've always loved the uh, architecture and design. And then when I uh, became a priest in 2010, um, I pursued my uh, theological uh, and, uh, and history um, uh, disciplines. And when I came to the point of starting my, uh, my PhD, I thought I could bring these two worlds together with the architecture world and the liturgical world. Uh, and that's when I created this uh, subject, subject with uh, the correlation between the liturgy and the architecture of the church. I think it's it's very very important that um, that we take time to actually appreciate uh, the correlations, the the relationships between these two elements, uh, and really see what the forefathers have to say uh, concerning the church buildings and and the liturgy. But after uh, 2014 2015, uh, with the um, political um, context of the Middle East. I had no other choice but to change my uh, PhD uh, thesis topic. Uh, and now I'm editing and um, uh, working on a Syriac manuscript by Autumn uh, Shikha uh, on the monastic writings, the admonitions to the monks and the brothers uh, in Hira and Khirta. Uh, but having said that, uh, back in 2014, I had the pleasure of going to, um, to Siri uh, in India and I presented a paper. Uh, that really make, uh, becomes the foundation for uh, today's talk and the information that I would like to share with, with your listeners. Very well, Mar. Thank you for um, letting us know about you know, your background in this area. And I think it is a very important aspect of um, you know, the church life. Um, and our second question for you is, what influences have had an impact on the way the church building was constructed? Wonderful. Thank you, uh, Subdeacon. Um, with the... The architecture of the church, I think the one thing that we all need to kind of understand is a concept that's called uh, form follows function. Now, when you have uh, a design, uh, for example, your studio, when you came to design the studio, you thought, uh, what are we going to do here uh, in order so that you could create the space, uh, design the space and build the space? So the intention and the function of your area uh, was a driving force in the, the design and the building of it. Same as a, a house design where you have uh, a kitchen to prepare food, a dining room to eat, uh, a living room to sit, and a bedroom to, uh, to sleep. Uh, so everything has a function and has a purpose, even though sometimes we might not focus on those uh, purposes or the spaces that we're in because uh, we're naturally understanding of, of those spaces based on our day-to-day -day lives. The church uh, building works in the same way, and it has many influences. Um, you see architecture that uh, is from um, different periods of history. And when you go drive around Sydney, for example, you'll see some buildings and uh, you will understand the classical elements, um, the, um, the Greek elements and, and so forth. Uh, the church itself, the building, uh, is, is like a language, let's say. Uh, languages change uh, every, every day. Uh, we, we can't keep a language sustained and perfect uh, and unchanged. Um, humans change. We grow day by day. Uh, every second of our lives, our bodies are changing and our minds are changing. So the, uh, I guess this personification of, of these buildings and primarily the church buildings 
it's important to understand uh, the history of uh, their their past and and what influences uh, were evident in that in that respect. So uh, the two things that creates a persona or an image for a church. Uh, primarily, you, you speak about the architecture and you talk about the liturgy. So it's the space and what happens within the space. Um, and this is something that some writers call a, um, a space-time, a liturgical space-time, where you have uh, heaven meeting uh, earth. Uh, if you put two circles together and you overlap them, you have a shared space in between, which becomes in the shape of an eye, let's say. Uh, that shared space is really the uh, the aspect of a divine realm and a, an earthly realm coming together and connecting. And that shared space becomes your, your liturgical space-time taking place within uh, the context of a church. So our churches within the past history, um, haven't all been the same. Uh, we can't uh, treat all Church of the East churches throughout the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, let's say, um, uh, throughout all the centuries as being the same design uh, and uh, being replicated throughout all of uh, the, the cities and the villages. There are many influences um, that have uh, been great in uh, and leading the, the design. For example, the Church of the East has drawn inspiration from many, many cultures. Um, uh, of the many elements within the church, there's something that uh, we all share, share amongst all of our churches across the world, is the three-room system. So when you enter a church, you naturally, the first thing that you see is you have the the qenke, the sanctuary, and you have the bath-amada, the uh, baptismal room, and then you have the diaconicon or the uh, uh, the change room, let's say, the bath-diakon. So this is, a, this is called the three I one um, system, and this is seen uh, in all of our churches today. Um, this is actually interesting because it's uh, an ancient uh, style um, that was found in a temple built over the pre-existing temple of Ashur in the city of Ashur in northern Iraq, and that's in the north northeastern section of the Parthian Empire. Now, the Parthian era allowed the city of Ashur to be restored and brought back to life, though not to the glory it once had. It seems as though a new building design entered this tradition with the rebuilding of the Ashur temple over the pre-existing site. Now, this uh, three I1 uh, structure is very interesting because it pre-exists uh, Christianity and even within the pagan temples of, the, uh, of uh, Mesopotamia, you have this three room section uh, that, that takes place and is built in our temples. And these were very uh, uh, sanctified, special areas. Not anyone uh, could walk in and just step up and go into this, these three rooms. The, these three rooms were kept just for the clergy, even in ancient times. And laymen, uh, uh, civilians, could not enter. Um, also, um, there is a very interesting book uh, by Emma Loosley uh, called The Architecture and Liturgy of the Bema in the 4th to the 6th century uh, Syrian churches. She discusses the general styles of ecclesiastical architecture in the Syrian region of the Limestone Massive, a region comparatively different from the churches of the Persian Empire, but how have built it similar in language and culture. It is notable that the West Syrian churches collected inspiration from the Roman civic models. So now we have uh, a Roman uh, influence within these churches that were more so in the Western part of the Syriac speaking world. Um, these churches uh, entailed a sanctuary, uh, which is the, the Benke that we said that we spoke about, just as in the temple of Ashur. Uh, it appears to be equivalent to the Iwan uh, of the pagan temple. Uh, in the Christian tradition, this three Iwan system offered spaces that were used as, as I said, as the Bithyakun, the Diaconicon, the sanctuary, the Benke, where the Raza takes place. Uh, and the baptismal room being the Bith Amada. Now, the notion that there is a dwelling place of the gods in these ancient pagan temples is echoed in early Christian architecture. Uh, the Holy of Holies, the Qudash uh, of course, following the style of the Jewish temple and the tabernacle, as we read in the Old Testament in the, in the Torah, reiterates a similar idea of the pagan temples, a place where the God's spirit dwelt and where one can go and make an offering 
uh, and this is paralleled within our churches. Uh, some writers uh, explain that the family of the, the deceased person, for example, in the if there was someone who had passed away, uh, they would uh, the family would uh, make the offering of the the bread. They would give the bread to the priest so that the priest would then use that bread to celebrate the holy qurban and the wine they would also um, give. So you have these uh, examples of people making donations, uh, giving uh, these elements as an offering to this place that is divine, that is consecrated, where we know and believe that the Holy Spirit lives and, uh, and dwells, just as in the, in the uh, ancient times where these pagan um, practices believed that uh, the spirit of the gods uh, dwelt. Now, being rooted primarily in the Persian Empire, uh, the Church of the East, which is also known as the Persian Church in history, was exposed to not only Judaism, but also Zoroastrianism. Now, Zoroastrianism is a religion based on the prophet Zoroaster about 600 years before the coming of Christ. It contains interesting forms of worship. Worship in Zoroastrianism is highly ritualistic, and of the many forms it takes, one in particular has parallels with Christian worship. It is widely known that in Zoroastrianism, the clergy are an integral part of worship. For instance, the Magi, uh, and this term uh, sometimes we assume to be kings, but really, if you take the word uh, in the ancient Persian religion, it means priest, the kehne, the magi, uh, would perform a ritual known as the darun or the baj. Now, this ritual is a ceremony where the priests would pray over many offerings, including unleavened bread, uh, ghee, fruits, and water, but they would do this in that particular place, and only the clergy would be in that, in that place and not the layman and uh, the believers or the followers of that religion. And as uh, some scholars say, and I'll quote, all the ceremonies in which the consecration of the Darun, the sacred unleavened bread, has a part must be performed on ground detached from the rest by oblong furrows about an inch or two deep uh, called the pavis, which mark out the space with, with, within which none but the officiating priests can enter. And this is very important, and we will know why this is uh, soon when we discuss the different elements of uh, the church building. Um, but it's extremely interesting to note that an architectural form or place, a space, is de designated only to the priests, uh, and similar to the Jewish temple, uh, the Christian church, the Zoroastrian um, temple, and even the pagan uh, temples of of ancient uh, Assyria, let's say. Um, also, they have a very interesting concept in the ancient Persian religion of the bloodless sacrifice. So there is an idea of a sacrifice, but that it is bloodless. Uh, and this is uh, some sort of penance um, known as yasna in, in this ancient religion. The final influence uh, that I'd like to note is the, that many Jewish communities, as we all know, uh, lived in the Persian Empire for a very long time. If you speak to your grandparents, your parents, they'll, I'm sure they'll have had uh, many uh, Jewish um, neighbors in Iraq, uh, in Baghdad, in uh, Basra, in Mosul, in many parts of Iraq. So Judaism was a very big part of uh, creating the image of early Christianity. As we know, uh, the faith started in Jerusalem um, and the, um, the apostles and the disciples primarily were, were Jewish. Uh, so uh, you would assume that this would be a very big part of, um, of the influence uh, because then we go into um, the early churches of, um, of the, um, the faith. Um, the influences that have been external and internal at times uh, is that um, the early churches, for example, in, in Jerusalem, uh, Christians, the followers of Christ, uh, would not uh, meet publicly and pray publicly and uh, celebrate the Qurbana publicly. Uh, they would be uh, hiding in places and mainly in homes. And this is where we get into the concept of the Domus Ecclesia, the, the house church, where early Christians would meet within uh, houses, gubate, uh, and they would worship in secret. 
uh, and and that played a big part in the way um, the influences were. But one cannot doubt that Judaism was one principal influence on the genesis of Christianity, the most important found and known to us nowadays, and this is shared with Judaism, with Christianity, and Manichaeism, is the use of the Bema. Um, the Bema, as I will dis- discuss soon, was some sort of stage that was in the center of the church uh, that was used for, uh, for worship. Uh, Emma Loosley, as I mentioned to her before, she notes that it is extremely difficult to identify the sole parents of this element, but nonetheless, it is quite evident in these traditions. And it is vital to know that terminology is critical. The Bema uh, term can be defined as many things, architecturally and theologically. Um, but she does touch upon this subject very well in her study. Um, and I can share this information with those who, who ask. Um, this, these are, were the main influences uh, within the early church in the Persian Empire, uh, with the ancient Persian religions, uh, with um, the, the Roman influences, and um, and and what and the ancient Assyrian religion, uh, religion and customs as well. Thank you so much, Mar, for your um, insightful explanation on the on the influences of the construction of the church. Um, if we move on to the third question. We're asking, um, what can you tell us about the ancient composition of the church and why was it built this way? Wonderful. Uh, thank you, Lecto. Um One thing that we also need to understand, and I think we all have an understanding of this actually, is that churches generally become destroyed and rebuilt over, over many years. Um, and we saw this with the destruction of many churches by um, terrorists, um, those who were uh, performing ethnic cleansing and, uh, and genocide uh, in the Middle East. Um, churches have been destroyed and rebuilt to kind of uh, use uh, a building and to say that this is the most ancient church and this is the most real, uh, original uh, design of a church. It's very hard to say. Um, for example, in Edessa, in Orhe, uh, which is modern-day Orfa, the southeastern uh, city in Turkey, where our church was born, where St. Thomas uh, uh, visited the city and uh, and so forth. Um, you have um, the city being in a flood zone, for example. Um, it was in an earthquake zone. So many earthquakes, many floods would take place and the churches would generally be destroyed and rebuilt. So I just want to make that known that when the information that we draw upon uh, is valid, but there is also a context of more ancient buildings, more ancient traditions that have simply been lost because of natural disasters, because of wars, because of genocides um, and, uh, and persecutions. Uh, but considering that, uh, we read about this um, in this context of the Middle East in contemporary times too, of course. Um, it's almost nearly impossible. It's not impossible, but it's nearly impossible to access a finely preserved East Syriac church building. Though Christianity flourished in the eastern part of the Roman Empire, the East seemed to worsen age by age. And that's a story I think that we were witnesses to even to the modern day. Uh, during the Council of Marti Matius I in 790 AD, uh, it is clear that the churches were destroyed and rebuilt, um, a story that continues to the modern day uh, in the Middle East um, and other parts of I'll quote from the the canons of the Synod. Um, I quote, However, we desire you to know this as well, our beloved, that it is not from pride or from negligence that we did not come to you, but because of the rebuilding of churches which have been destroyed and because of other pressing reasons. However, if God, the Lord of all, commands and the king accepts our petition, God preserve his life. By the rebuilding of churches, for six times we have gone before him in this matter, when the hard question questions in which we are ensnared as though in shackles are resolved, we shall come uh, for your sight and for your greeting through God. May he strengthen you to fulfill his will all the days of your life. Be strong and pray for us. Grace be with you. Amen. So this is taken from the, the canons of the Synod uh, of 790, Marti Matius Rabba. Of course, Marti Matius uh, was a patriarch of our church, uh, from 780 to 823 AD. It was patriarch of our church and the overseer of a Diabin, a district uh, in modern-day Erbil, uh, Orfa, which is um, Edessa and other parts of Turkey and Iran. 
Uh, over 500 kilometers from Edessa, the patriarch wrote during the Synod of 790, during the uh, regarding the destruction and intentions of rebuilding of Christian churches. The destruction of the churches caused modern day scholarship great obstacles. First, at time of rebuilding, in this case in the eighth century, different materials would have been used, uh, different cultures would have been around, different technologies for building uh, would have been around, and then you would have a different uh, design influences by different factors. Um, and bearing in mind at this point in history, uh, we find the, the birth of Islam and the Islamization of, of all these, these regions. Um, there is one um, there is one church in uh, in Edessa. Of course, we don't have any designs to show or any pictures to show, but there is an anonymous author who composes a hymn, Chasurita, uh, for uh, the cathedral at Edessa, um, with a great church of Edessa. Of course, Edessa, as I mentioned, being in uh, a flood zone um, and having... Um, the natural uh, disasters occurring with earthquakes and whatnot, during the time of Justinian, uh, you find that um, the churches were rebuilt and reconstructed. And in that Sorita, um, I'll quote about two or three different stanzas. Um, they say that it was so beautiful. The only way we can understand this cathedral of Edessa, this church in Edessa, um, in the 5th century, 6th century, is only through this concise surita, this hymn. Um, and even in the words that they use, it's as if the cathedral was so beautiful that it was constructed and made without the use of humans, without the use of hands. Um, it was more or less divine in its beauty. Uh, but one stanza says, for it is truly a wonder that its that its smallest uh, is like the wide world, not in size but in type, like the sea waters surround it. So it was huge. It was big. It was beautiful. Um, and then exalted are the mysteries of this temple in which the heaven and earth symbolize the most exalted Trinity and our Savior's dispensation. And finally. Clearly portrayed in it are the mysteries of both your essence and your dispensation. He who looks closely will be filled at length with wonder. So this church in Edessa was quite beautiful. And we don't have much to go by apart from the Surita, but it just makes you understand uh, the context of the cathedral. One other thing to note, uh, which is very important, is that the church building is a reflection of the community. Um, if you have uh, a church in a very humble village with not many uh, carpenters um, and laborers and workers, the church will be very humble, very modest and simple, um, maybe even architecturally or physically not be very liable, but um, I'm sure Allah uh, would make all our buildings stand um, in his glory. And there are many examples that we don't have time to go through today uh, where some Churches have had uh, some uh, elements within the building that architecturally in building could not stand, but but God's spirit and, and the prayers of the saints allow those those things to, to stay strong. But uh, some uh, cities where you have many wealthy people, um, laborers, carpenters, uh, people with uh, uh, who work with stone, um, you will see that the church is a reflection of their capabilities and the church will be so beautiful and lavish and uh, prestigious in its material um, and in its, uh, in its existence. Uh, and this is uh, something that is very um, real today. If you go to a community of our church across the world, if the, uh, the village or the city is quite poor, then the church will look uh, very simple. But if the church community, the parish is wealthy, then of course you have a very lavish, you know, you've got chandeliers and marbles and, and whatnot uh, used in the church. Um, but having uh, said all of that, um, we turn to the liturgy, of course, uh, to discuss um, the, um, uh, the relevance of the architecture. But just very uh, quickly, um, these elements of the, the church uh, in ancient times, um, I myself went to a uh, church in Bazian um, in, in Iraq uh, in the summer of uh, 2013. Now, uh, I was only three years into my priesthood when I went, but I really wanted to go to better understand the church building 
um, and uh, really to see the Bema and the Shkakun, and we will discuss these um, elements soon, um, in, in person. Now, the church building is, uh, is made up of many, many elements. Uh, you have uh, this church that I visited in Bazian in Slemania. Um, it's, uh, some would think it probably is a monastery. Um, others uh, take it to be a church building uh, or an Episcopal uh, cathedral. Uh, the Bema itself, is, it's very interesting that any church that you see with a Bema, it automatically tells you that that church has a bishop or a metropolitan because the Bema, apart from having the Garulta and the Madabcha there to start the hallowing of the word, as you've discussed over the past few times and moments, um, uh, the, the Bema would then house the, the throne of the bishop or the Kursia, the Dabskopa, or the Metropolita, the Metropolitan. A church that does not have a Bema would uh, then tell you that it was just a, a standard parish with a parish priest and, and not a cathedral. So any church with a Bema naturally tells you that it was an Episcopal cathedral or a Metropolitan's cathedral, as we have in, in Sydney and in our Episcopal seats across, across the world. Um, so this Bema, the stage, uh, connects directly to the, um, uh, to the Benke, let's say, or the Qastroma, the three steps, uh, via a gangway or a, a pathway. Now, looking at these photos that I took myself at the church in Slemania, you find that the Bema, being in the center of the church, uh, is connected to the Qastroma, which is the, the, the three steps that we still see today in our churches. And then that enters into the Holy of Holies, uh, being the, the sanctuary, the Qenke. Um, all of these elements have... Uh, a reason or a, a symbolism that, that we have to appreciate. Um, if you look at all these elements, um, we will find that through the writings of Margi Wergesit Erbil um, in the 10th century, he uses the church at Margi Wergesit Erbil uh, to, uh, to make his points known. And looking at the church design, as you can see now in the, in the, the plan, you have uh, the Qenke, uh, um, the sanctuary, which is always facing east in most of our churches. Um, and this is in the anticipation of the resurrection of Christ, because Jesus will resurrect, uh, will return in the second coming from the east. Um, the Qenke represents the, pla the significant place of worship and heaven. So it's uh, the Shmeya, uh, the heavens. Um, in the apse, the Renke, to the side of it is the diaconicon or the deacon's house, uh, the change room as we as we have today. Um, and uh, this is, of course, to, to the left. And then uh, to the right is the Beth Amada, the baptismal room. The baptismal room is always uh, to the right of the Renke because uh, in the southern end of the original church in, um, in Jerusalem, it was facing the Jordan River. And because baptism is the entry into the faith and the official um, uh, recognition and accepting of Christ uh, and the rebirth, uh, the only way to enter into the church is through baptism because, of course, the baptismal room was facing the south where that would, in Jerusalem, be facing the, the Jordan River. Um, the outside part, which you have, is the Qastroma, the Qastroma, I know these terms might be overwhelming, but uh, and a lot of them are from the Greek um, roots, but uh, the Qastroma is simply the three steps. Uh, you, you, when you enter the church, you have the nave, which is, of course, the world, the, the nave in being the center of the church. Um, then you have the three steps going up to the, the Bikenke, the, the sanctuary, uh, those three steps represent paradise. So paradise is in between the the, the heavens, the heaven, and uh, and the world. And that's those are the three steps. Uh, the uh, apse uh, had at least two doors leading out to the Qastroma, and then a great uh, door and a little one as well. Um, so there were plenty of doors as well in this uh, proximity. Um, also... Uh, you have um, the 
the bema being in the center of the nave, the nave, as I mentioned to you, being this, the world, and the bema, the stage, as you've seen in the photos I've shared, is in right in the center. That represents Jerusalem, because Jesus came and preached in Jerusalem. And this is why the hallowing of the word, the Qudash al-Milta, takes place within the Bema and not within the Qanke, as we have today, which we will discuss soon, uh, to show that Jesus came to Jerusalem, being the center of the world. He preached, and then the priests would progress through the, um, uh, through the gangway um, all the way across uh, into the, the Qanke. So you have the Bema, and then you have the Shqaquna, this uh, gangway, this pathway, let's say, that connects the Bema to the Qastruma, paradise, more or less. And then you also have the something called the Qatsdarin, um, which was held up like a, um, a dome held up by four columns. Um, and you will see that in the photos that I've shared, as you can see the four columns surrounding the Bema. Uh, the Qastruma, as I mentioned, being paradise, um, and uh, the Qanke and the Holy of Holies, the Bith Amada and Bith Diakun, all these different rooms um, uh, in, within the church building. So just very quickly, that was an introduction to the elements of the church. As you can see, there are many parallels with, um, with a spiritual realm. And this, is, this goes, back, goes back to the, um, we get back to the idea of um, this, the liturgical space-time um, creating a heavenly realm within the church that earth and heaven meet together. And in that, we have the earth, the world, we have um, Jerusalem in the center of the world. But then the word became flesh, came down into the world, and that was in Jerusalem, and then progressed through into uh, heaven, and that shows you the, the ascension uh, and, uh, and all these different uh, elements that, that we discussed. Thank you very much, Mar. It was very insightful to know about how it was back then and these influences that um, that influenced the architecture of the church and how it affected the worship and how it, how the people came together for that worship. Um, our, other, our other question we have is, are there many differences between the architecture of the church today compared to the different times throughout history? And why were these changes made? Like you mentioned the Bema and other things like that. Why don't we see those things nowadays? Sure. Thank you, Andrew. Um, the main differences uh, between the ancient churches of, let's say, the 7th, 8th centuries, the 10th century, uh, and today's uh, churches is that these elements still exist, uh, Andrew, within the churches. Um, you have um, the Bema more or less amalgamated with the sanctuary. And this is why you have the, the Tronus or the Kursi Episcopa, the throne or the chair of the bishop or the metropolitan is inside the Qanke, where at one point it was on the Bema outside within the center of the, the church. Um, the Qastroma still exists, of course, uh, because the Bema has been amalgamated with uh, the Qanke, the, the sanctuary, then naturally the gangway or the shqaquna is, um, is, is pointless um, because you, where, where would it lead into? Um, and then the, this three I1 uh, structure of the Qanke and the Bithamada or Bithyakun, these three rooms um, for the clergy that connect to one another, they still exist. The Qatsdarin, of course, uh, if you go to some churches in India uh, of our church, uh, you'll see that uh, it's before it would be placed uh, over um, the uh, the bema within the church, but now in some churches in India, the qatsdarin being four columns holding up a dome, um, are is uh, hovering over uh, the 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 place where the priest stands, where he does raza. So these elements are still around, but the question of the bema. It needs a lot of research and a lot of um, uh, discussion. Um, the reason why it's no longer uh, built or with us uh, is a very difficult question because in, uh, it's not that it changed in the past hundred years. We're talking about hundreds of years of, um, of change. So it would be very interesting to find out why we've stopped uh, building 
the Behemata, let's say, uh, within our churches. Um, but, uh, but it is a very interesting concept within the church. Uh, the difference is mainly t- today and back in, in history is that we would not have the pews in the churches and the kursi and ganape uh, would not would not exist. We would have to be standing most of the raza and we would sit down on the floor as you go to India as well. Again, uh, you will find that uh, the, the churches do not have pews, no chairs. So you sit down. And during the raza, of course, um, when uh, the qaruya uh, reads from the lectionary uh, and he says, when we youth at Pullan, uh, and everyone sits, that sitting, of course, back then they would be sitting on the ground, represents that death came into the world. And then قُمْ shuraya, as you would say, stand for the prayer of shuraya. The standing up represents the, the resurrection and the hope of, uh, of salvation, because then the lecta becomes the voice of one calling in the wilderness, like St. John the Baptist. So within the churches, you would have no pews. People would be sitting on the floor or standing up. Uh, and in some ancient churches, you would have um, a wooden frame uh, dividing the church into two parts. You'd have the, the men's section and the women's section. And it's not that one was right and left. Uh, no, it was that the forward part was for the men and the, the back part was for the women. And each had their own entry door uh, to enter. Um, but of course, that changes and, and thankfully that changed uh, that now there is a uh, uniformity and uh, equality um, within, within the churches, but uh, other parts that are not the same uh, as it were before is the use of choirs. Uh, the chanting would mainly be done by the, the clergy and the deacons. And this choir concept of course is a Western uh, idea, uh, but we would have, uh, many, um, uh, for example, the Bnei Qiyama, Qiyama, the sons and daughters of the covenants, would also be chanting and would play the part of a choir, more or less. Um, so the idea of a choir still existed, but not as as we have it today. Uh, but uh, apart from all the differences, there are so many similarities um, in in that respect. Uh, one other example is that the, the door of the church to enter would be from the southern end and not um, the western end uh, to represent, as I said, the the original church in Jerusalem, the Domus Ecclesia, where that southern wall faced the Jordan River um, and allowed people to understand that to enter into the church, to enter into the family of God, you would have to uh, enter through baptism uh, and rebirth. Uh, so these are just a few examples of, of that. Thank you, Mar, for that information. Um, you've given us a lot of valuable information on um, the history and the construction and the design of the church, not only the modern church, but um, the church throughout history, um, the ancient church, and as it's progressed to the church that we have today. Um, before, you spoke about um, this concept of form and function, um, and you spoke about how um, the, the, the design of the church is constructed for its function, and it follows this principle. Um, so our question is, what significance does the liturgy have with the architecture, and why is the Qudasha so important? Wonderful. Thank you, Subdeacon. Um, you know, having introduced, as you mentioned, these uh, influences on the architecture and, and the early Church of the East buildings, uh, let's now take uh, a moment to dive into an, an area of uh, theology or an area of understanding that is quite different to one that you would see uh, rationally or built with hands. Um, as lavished and beautiful as our churches can be in many cities, uh, the Qudasha, the, um, the actual Qurbana Qadisha, the Anaphora, the Holy Raza, is something that uh, is, is like its own architecture, let's say, uh, and it's beautiful in its essence and its, its uh, construction. Um, I mentioned earlier that some churches and communities would uh, build their churches based on their capabilities, how much money they had, how many craftsmanship they uh, have, how, how many people they had as carpenters, as uh, um, laborers. Um, but the, the beautiful part is that the Qudasha uh, doesn't need all those laborers, doesn't need all those uh, people working stone and gold and marble, uh, because consistently throughout all of the churches, the Qurbana Qadisha is, is quite uh, c- consistent. Um, and and this part of the church uh, is not built with blocks and mortar, but it's uh, with ink and paper, uh, and it's a beautiful part of the architecture. And without it, the church building becomes idle, becomes nothing. 
Um, now, I believe that the anaphora plays, or the Hodesha, the Holy Gaza, plays a vital role within the architectural formation of the judge. The anaphora celebrates the architecture at a higher level. Now, by amalgamating or joining these two aspects into one study, let's try to understand uh, how they do justice for one another, how they help one another. It's more, more or less like your body and your soul, your body being physical and your soul being spiritual, the Qurban Qadisha being the spiritual element and the church building being the physical element. The anaphora in question is one that has attracted uh, the attention of many. It is believed and widely accepted that the anaphora of the apostles at Day and Mahdi is the most ancient, consistent order found in Eucharistic worship. The crystallization of the anaphora. Now, the, this word crystallization, I want us to pay particular attention to, is a word that shows you how the maturing of the Qudasha or the anaphora has changed over time, but has set itself perfectly so quickly. Qudasha, um, as I mentioned in, in the beginning, and as buildings to design, they change with elements by different patriarchs, different influences. The, the Raza Qadisha has always been amended. It's not that when we do Raza Qadisha, it's the most original form uh, in the early centuries. If we were to do the, the Raza of the early centuries, then we would only take us about half an hour to do. But but because of across the centuries and over the centuries, uh, many patriarchs uh, added um, uh, parts to the Qurban Qadisha, like the canonization of the Awan Bushmeya, that we say Qadish, 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 Awan Bushmeya, added by Martin Matthews. So that's something that leaves the signature of the patriarch uh, within within the church's context. But the Qudash at Mar'a de Marmari found itself formalized and crystallized very, very early compared to other Qudash. Um, and it can be seen in its uniformity, its structure, and how continuously it's being used since the second and third centuries AD. Um, I encourage you to read the works of William Macomba. Uh, he writes on the Anaphora, and his studies are invaluable in this field. Macomba discovered the earliest manuscript of the Anaphora known to us in the library of the Church of Marishaya in Mosul, considerably older than the Mardin 22 manuscript and the Khudra manuscript of Diyarbakir. Now, many manuscripts were discovered and documented by Makomba in the Middle East. An interesting notion is brought to our attention that the anaphora of the apostles, notably still in use by the Church of the East, including the Chaldean Catholic Church and the ancient Church of the East, has a wide spectrum of, uh, of worship. Uh, the anaphora commences with the hallowing of Udasha of the Miltha, as you've already discussed, uh, followed by the hallowing of the Qurbana, as you've already discussed, then the thanksgiving and the partaking. So these elements, these Udashe, all take place within this beautiful, perfect uh, environment being the church building, whereas the body and the soul come together and they're united with one another. Within the central uh, segments of the Raza being the hallowing of the Qurban Qadisha, uh, there are distinct uh, methods of worship. And when you go to church and you see the Qasha uh, di Labrika, when he, the, the celebrants, the, the priest is uh, kneeling, uh, that is of course the Kushapa. When he is bowing forward, that's the Ghenta. Or if he's got, if he's standing up straight with his arms wide open, that's the Qanuna. So you have these three phases of worship within the architecture of the church celebrate, celebrating the Qurban Qadisha. Now, interestingly enough, Mokomba pr proposes, as supported by his findings, that a number of manuscripts lack the kushape, which are private prayers of the celebrants that precede, in general, each kenta. Um, further, this notion is confirmed by Marishaya uh, Khudra, the Marishaya Khudra. And the most ancient uh, known manuscript of the Anaphora, a reasonable explanation uh, to this uh, proposed by Makomba, uh, alludes that the Kushape were not yet universally recognized part of the liturgy, even as late as the 13th century. So why that's important, that shows you how uh, the Qudasha also changes alongside with the, the architecture, that back before the 13th century, during the 13th century and before then, the Kushape, when the priest is kneeling down with his head down praying, they would be open prayers uh, for, uh, for the celebrant to, uh, to pray. There was no word 
uh, written or a booklet in the Tafsa to say, read this during the Kushapa. What tradition tells us is that the priest that would be celebrating the Qurbana, before he would start the, the celebration of the oblation of the Qurbana Qadisha, he would go to his brother priests that were around the Bema or sitting on the Bema, uh, and he would collect their prayer points. He would write them down. After collecting the prayer points from the, his fellow uh, clergymen, he would use those prayer points for, um, uh, for the Kushapi. You can imagine some parishes, some priests would take maybe um, uh, maybe 20 minutes in the Kushapa. Some would take a minute uh, or two. So there was inconsistency of um, some taking too much time and some taking not enough time uh, to pray the Kushapa. So this, again, uh, was crystallized um, after the thir 13th century when we now, across the church, have the Kushapi that are um, written and perfectly uh, accounted uh, in the uh, the Dachsa. Now, Sebastian Brock, and I'm sure you all know who he is, uh, in his article in the Anophoral Genesis of the Institution Narrative in light of the Anophor of Adin Mari, what he writes, he says that the Syriac Anophoras basically belong to the Antiochian liturgical tradition, though it needs to be remembered that the East Syriac tradition of the Church of the East developed outside the Roman Empire and its connections with centers within the Roman Empire were with Edessa rather than with Antioch. And it is probably this Edessa link which accounts for the fact that several common features exist between the Anaphora of Adei Mari and the Maronite Anaphora known to us as the Sharar or Peter III. Now, furthermore, the most essential part to fully understand the Anaphora is to critically read and examine the rubrics. Now, your rubrics are the words written in red ink in the, the taqsa. Many times we don't pay too much attention to these red notes. We just look at the black parts. But it's very important to read the red rubrics, uh, the notes, to understand what we ought to do. The rubrics become more or less like your guide or your manual uh, to how to work the building, how to how to understand the architecture and where to progress to, where to start, where to finish, where to move, when to sit, when to stand. Um, and that's all uh, uh, preserved within, um, within the, the rubrics. Um, but these are uh, the anophora, the Qudasha itself, um, is some sort of unseen art. It's so beautiful, so intricate, so deep, um, and it celebrates itself within uh, the uh, the church building, the architecture. Uh, the architecture becomes like a frame and the Qudasha becomes like a, a canvas that is uh, enclosed by this frame beautifully. Um, and our churches are quite uh, simple. Uh, you walk into our churches, you don't see any images, any um, icons or whatnot. And and this, of course, opens up a whole different subject with iconography and, uh, and when our churches had icons. Um, for example, some of our churches that had very um, uh, wealthy people within them, uh, they would even have beautiful uh, mosaics on the Bema uh, of images of saints, of angels, of, um, of biblical scenes. Um, so we've had images in our churches. We've had the, the icon of Odessa, the Mandelian. We've had the icon of the Virgin Mary. We have had many icons in our church and many images within our churches. But of course, this needs its own time and its own research um, to discuss it further. And it works the same way because the iconography is not only found in the historical elements, but it is also found in the liturgy and the khudra and the, the taqsid ka'ani. But these two elements, the architecture, uh, and the, the anaphora, the qudasha, they go together so beautifully and they make us understand and appreciate um, the area, that we, the environment that we, that we enter into, uh, where we literally leave earth and we enter heaven and we enter uh, Jerusalem. Um, and and, and uh, at, at some levels, it can be even seen as a pilgrimage. When we go to church every Sunday, you ascend up into Jerusalem you hear the word where Jesus preached, and then you are revealed to his graces and his mercies through the hallowing of the Urbana Qadisha, where he reveals to us his mysteries and his promises and his covenant uh, for our salvation and our eternal life. Thank you for explaining the importance of the Qudasha and the correlation between the liturgy and the um, architecture of the church. 
Um, Mar, all this information that you've given us um, perfectly leads us to the final question that we have, and that is, should we expect a change in the future in regards to the architecture of the church, or have we settled with this current design? Um, I pers- Now I'm speaking personally, so don't quote me. Um, I personally uh, would love to see uh, more consistency amongst our churches, our church buildings, um, not to... Um, you know, with all my respects to all of our churches, our churches are quite beautiful. Um, they, our communities make our churches beautiful. Our people celebrate and decorate our churches. Um, so the church building is merely physical, but it is consecrated. So no matter what the church looks like, it's consecrated ground. So it's uh, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. But for, um, for the design purposes, it would be nice to see more consistency within our churches um but having said that our churches are very still consistent um personally i would love to see the return of the bema in the future uh, that would be wonderful only of course in the cathedrals um of of our churches our episcopal centers or our metropolitan sees um uh, it would be wonderful to have that but if you do if we do do that then it would be very alien to our communities they will not understand the the procession of the clergy from the bema into the the Qastruma and uh, going into the the Bikanke, the sanctuary. Um, it, it, I think uh, too much time has gone by for it to, to come back. Um, but having said that, it still exists within our churches. The Garulta, the three steps that we see in our Qanke, um above the, the altar, that originally would be on the Bema and not into, in the, um, the Qanke. But uh, it still exists. It's still there. Um, so we don't know what the future holds, uh, but uh, I think the majority would agree that um, we are quite comfortable with what we what we have and the the liturgy that we celebrate. Um, but you never know. With uh, it, it is a very uh, it is a very beautiful history of ours with Abema, and I hope that we can have a mock up church to give our people the sense of um, uh, the history of our church to understand our ancient churches, but purely just for education, uh, um, not for anything else. But uh, you never know what, what can happen in the future. That's right. Thank you for that, Mar. I think that's right. Like if we have a change, it's very alien to us. It's very foreign. And our people, um, me first, will be like, hey, I'm not used to this. It's, it's going to take time to settle in. Um, but like you said, it's not like we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And that will be determined like we don't know what's going to happen so Mar, i'd like to thank you for coming on your words have been very insightful they've done a, they've been a great benefit to us and the viewers i hope um would love to have you on again and thank you very much for coming on Mar. thank you so much it was a pleasure to be with you all and god bless you again for the great work that you're doing hope to see you again soon god bless you all thank you so much thank Mar. you thank you guys for watching um just remember to share this and get this um arch- this video on the architecture out because it's something that People ask about like what's the bema, what is it played in the church, and it's good for people to understand how the liturgy plays in to the architecture of the church and how they tie tie in together and how everything is so put in place so that our worship to God is perfect in front of Him. So I thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thank you.